We've been working through this series, uh, The Seven Deadly Sins, just to give us, uh, if you like, uh, an opportunity, a springboard, to look at some of the real issues, some of the challenges which down through uh, these past uh, centuries have uh, weighed on the minds of, of theologians and thinkers when the Bible speaks about sin, helping us to think about the issue, deal with it. And uh, here we are, we're dealing with the issue this afternoon of lust. Straight away, we kind of think, wow, this is going to be a really challenging uh, issue, isn't it? Because we live in a world today which is just, it seems, surrounded by it. So I want to ask, um, what is going on? What is it? We live in a world where particularly in the West, uh, the past few years, decade or so, has seen an absolute explosion in pornography. Uh, The access of pornography, access to pornography uh, through the internet has has moved it from uh, probably a smaller number of people engaging with it, comparatively speaking, to it becoming so incredibly prevalent. It's the root of the crisis in many marriages. Having said that, I found it fascinating to see an article which was written in the Daily Telegraph this month, which said, are you ready for this? One of the reasons for the breakdown in marriages is because of Mills and Boone. Were you expecting that? The writer said this. When it comes to romantic fiction, the clue's in the name. The genre is fiction, not fact. And while romance may be the wonderful foundation for a novel, it's not in itself a sufficiently strong foundation for running a lifelong relationship. But I do wonder how many of our clients truly realize that. I think that is fascinating and incredibly insightful and so challenging and helpful. We live in a world, don't we, where I don't need to explain to you that we are men and women. You know, we are, there are two of us. And our minds and our appetites and our view of things tends to be in one particular direction. And so we live in a world where a confused perspective on these issues presents itself in different ways and yet is the same root problem that we view Relationship with a twisted, perverted perspective. What is lust? It's a desire which is out of control. Sex is an incredibly powerful engine, isn't it? Isn't it an incredibly powerful thing? As an appetite. I mean, we live in a world, don't we, where we we, we continually are being told... Uh, Sex is just a very natural thing, which it is. Uh, And our appetite for it is very naturally something which we should satisfy. 
just a bit like any other appetite. It is completely normal for us to satisfy our appetites, isn't it? You know, we get hungry, and uh, so we go and eat. We get thirsty, and so we go and drink. We feel cold, and so we get warm. We need relationships, so we build friendships. We need sex, and so we go and have sex. That's the world that we live in. Isn't sex an incredibly powerful thing? And yet, aren't we uh, living in a world which is telling us that all of our appetites, we're just satisfied? One of the things, one of the great challenges to the Christian faith and to the message of the Bible is that uh, we have been perceived, or the message of the Bible has been perceived, that that the Christian message just looks down on the idea of sex. The reality is that God has an astoundingly high view of sex. An incredibly high view of it within a particular context. In fact, of all of, the, all of the major religions, it is Christianity that has the elevated, glorious view of sexual relationship and intimacy. It places it on such a high profile and, and believes it to be incredibly important. It elevates it, not decries it. And so we live with this dilemma where we we see the Bible saying one thing and yet we get the feeling that it's being portrayed in a slightly different way. In fact, in an incredibly antagonistic way. You know that kind of Victorian uh, prudish uh, idea where anything to do with that is just just dirty and we don't want to go there and it's horrible and we just don't want to take part in that kind of grisly stuff. Is that what the Bible says? Is that really what the Bible says? In reality, and I think what we are able to see, the Bible places intimacy at the very highest level. How does sex take place? Between a man and a woman. That's what the Bible describes it as. God made us like that right at the very beginning. So right at the very beginning, God says, you are made for intimacy. Why? Why does God say that? You are made for intimacy. You are made for intimacy because I am an intimate God. I am a God who is intimate in my being. Intimacy is a wonderful thing. But sexual relationship, according to the Bible, comes out of oneness. We think, in fact, we live in a world where we think something like this, don't we? We think, yeah, he looks nice, she looks nice. Uh, Let's see how we get on. Now, let's see if we are sexually compatible so that we can become one. The Bible says if you think like that, you are reversing the pattern that God has established in this world. He's saying you need to be one so that you might then be intimate. You need to be one. And to be one is a wonderful, precious thing. Something along the lines of to be one is to be spiritually committed together, to be emotionally committed together, to be life committed together, 
to, to, to share in every little aspect of life. And therefore, because of that, we express that oneness physically and intimately. If I say to you, or if you say to somebody else, I want you physically, but I don't want you spiritually, I don't want you emotionally, I don't want to be one with you in any other way, I am not saying I want you for you. I am saying, I want you for me. It's not about oneness and relationship. It's about personal self-satisfaction. Let's see how this works out, because we can see unfolding a crisis in the life of David. For those of you who don't know David, we just read here uh, about David uh, being on his couch in verse 2 walking on the roof of the king's house. Who is he? David is the king of God's people. David is somebody who has been, if you, we could have tracked through his life, but we haven't got time, uh, somebody who has been uh, appointed by God to lead his people. In fact, he is the representative to a great extent of God with his people. God's people in this world are, if, are, if you like, God's, indication of his blessing to this world. How does that work? God, a distant God, as perceived by many. God, a God who is just out there and not connected with this world, connects himself with this world through his people. And we see that flowing right the way through the Bible. Uh, A people who should not have been able to flourish and develop actually do flourish and develop. Against all the odds, people uh, continue to grow now as the people of God. Those of you who are are aware of the the growth of the Christian church in sub-Saharan Africa and in China know that the growth of the Christian church in those places is against all of the odds. Against great opposition, political opposition. Uh, opposition, tribal opposition. And yet, God's people, against all odds, have grown. Why? Because it is God communicating to this world, I am with you through a people. We see that idea developing through the Bible. We see that King David here is appointed to be there for God's people. And it happens like this. He's out at the end of the day, stepping out from his couch. Do you get the picture? He kind of, he's there relaxing. He steps off his couch or slides off his couch at the end of a warm evening, just trips out onto the balcony, looks out over Jerusalem. And one thing catches his eye. Bathsheba, who is washing, a beautiful woman. The Bible never says that the recognition of beauty in another person is a bad thing. 
We are made to find each other attractive. God made us like that. We are made to find each other enjoyable to be with. It's what we do with it. Here we have David, the king, goes out and he sees this woman washing. It is at that moment in time where he has a decision to make. Guys, particularly. Because this is where it really hits home. We have got a second. One second. To make a decision with what to do with the next mouse click. And David is faced with that decision at that point in time. And his decision is not to honour and respect a woman. He keeps looking. And what opens up is a crisis... Of desire. It's the first crisis that he faces. At that moment, his mind goes to a place where it should not go. He he subverts the model that God has designed. He says, in that moment, I want you for me, for my satisfaction. Do you think his mind went to uh, oneness? Do you think his mind went to spiritual oneness, to relational oneness, to emotional oneness? Did his mind go to the fact that she was already married? Did his mind go there? No. Why? Because there was a crisis of desire. At that moment, he wanted her for him. He didn't want her for her. Those of you who are... uh, on the journey of relationships and, and establishing relationships, or those of you who are in relationships and are, are looking to say, well, how can, we, how can we build on this? How can we improve this? If you imagine two people coming together in relationship, at the, the crossover point, the point where the two things come together is, is the relationship bit, isn't it? That's where relationship takes place, the interface between two people. If you look at that interface, and in that interface you are saying, what can I get out of it? What can I drag out of that interface of relationship? What can I take from that? For me, you are on a downward spiral. I am on a downward spiral. If I am looking at that relationship saying, what can I get out of it? You find yourself in that situation? Here's where we get honest with each other, isn't it? Or at least honest with our own hearts. The reality is that we all do that, don't we? We all look at relationships. We all look at those intimate, close relationships. And we are all, again and again, guilty of saying, in that interface, I am looking at what I can take out of it. I I am dragging out of that relationship. You know what happens when two people drag out of that relationship? (laughs) Pulls it apart. It pulls it apart. Because I am not looking for what I can add into it. I am looking for what I can get out of it. Now, just, just imagine. Just imagine the kind of relationship 
where rather than saying, what can I drag out of it, what, am, what would happen if we were in a situation where two people came together and they said, from now on, I'm going to just work all the time at pushing into that relationship. I'm just going to drive into that. I'm going to give to it. I'm going to push into it. What happens when two people work at that all of the time? <laughs> we get out of it what we hope to drag out of it in the first place. But we get out of it because it's given to us. You see what happens? When we push into it, when we're continually saying, I want your relationship, I want your life, I want your existence in this world to be improved, to be benefited, because you are with me. I want it to be better for you, because I'm about. What happens when two people do that? We get out what we hoped for anyway. It happens that way. Because when two people are just pushing into it, it ends up with spilling out with everything that we'd hoped for. David is facing a crisis of desire here. Because at that moment in time, he is not looking to put into a relationship, he is looking to take out of it. And it starts. What is beautiful become selfish what is something which is natural and ordinary and part of God's pattern for the way that we are made is subverted and twisted he has a crisis of desire the second crisis that he has and the crisis which I think just exhibits itself time and time again it's just clearer with somebody who's a king. He has a crisis of power. There's a second crisis that he has. Look at what happens. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and lay with her. Crisis of power. She's now in a situation where the king has made, placed the calling card through messengers. But then don't we all do that with each other? Don't we all, in our relationships, in our own ways, play games of power to take out? We do that all the time. In fact, we do it in the examples that we've just seen. Uh, you know, the, the kind of pornography, Mills and Boone dilemma. On the one hand, I have power to take. On the other hand, I have power to create an emotional burden which you can never meet. I, that's what I want. I want a relationship where you are the kind of continuous knight in shining armor who is always uh, six foot two and dark haired and, and cleanly shaven or whatever goes on in your minds, which is beyond me. Uh, whatever it might be, you have in your minds what it must be. And there is then a journey towards an emotional pressure, which is, you don't deliver that, do you? You're not that. You're not like that kind of ideal, that person. Aren't they both ideals in our mind? 
the idea of ideal physical, the ideal sexual response, the ideal emotional response, the ideal uh, conversation in the evening. You know, they're both games of power. Don't we do that? Don't we try to, 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 to manipulate? Oh, it's just horrible to admit it. <laughs> it's hard to admit it. But we do. It is what we do. Not all the time. By God's grace. But look where David went. A crisis of desire becomes a crisis of power. Where does that take him? Where does that take David? From a crisis of desire, he has a crisis of power to a crisis of guilt. Isn't it? She ends up pregnant. And then David takes the first step of bringing Uriah back from the battlefield and encouraging him to rest, relax, go back home, lie with your wife, and then nobody will know. And then that doesn't work because Uriah is committed to the objectives of God's people. He's a man of dignity. He's a man of honour. And behind the scenes, we've got one who appears... Uh, to all intents and purposes, to be the ultimate man of honour, the king, the ultimate man of dignity. And yet behind it, it is a crisis of guilt which is encouraging this other man, who is a man of dignity and a man of honour, to go and spend the night with his wife. And then that doesn't work, so he gets her drunk. And then that doesn't, so he gets him drunk, rather, sorry. Gets him drunk. And that doesn't work. So he has him murdered. Those words that he writes out, in the morning, David, verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Just think about that. He pens the words. He then places that letter in the hand of Uriah who carries his own death warrant to his commander. Look at what happens when we go down the journey of a crisis of desire and a crisis of power. We have a crisis of guilt which takes us into the most extraordinary and surprising places. David, one who had been spoken to by God, one who was God's mouthpiece and king and servant, becomes a murderer and an adulterer. He gives him the letter. And he becomes the one who might as well have pulled the sword and killed it. He might as well have, mightn't he? It's as good as. You see, when we, when we drive, 
for sexual satisfaction. When we drive for that powerful craving, that, that overpowering appetite, which I, I, heard, um, I heard somebody speak about this uh, in the past couple of weeks, and they said this, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. He said, um, uh, what, kind of, uh, what kind of lad goes away for, for college and pins on his wall uh, posters of Big Macs? Nobody. Why? Because the appetite for eating isn't the same as the appetite for sex, is it? It is an astoundingly powerful thing. We don't kind of go all bleary-eyed, although we might at certain points, we don't go bleary-eyed at a can of Coke, but we do go bleary-eyed at something which triggers our sexual response. How powerful is it? And yet, when we mistreat it, when we misuse it, how devastating is it? It takes us to murder. The sad thing is we see this working out in generations. 2 Samuel chapter 13, we see uh, the grandson of David, Amnon. Amnon's uh, sister, stepsister I guess, Tamar, we read in chapter 13 that Amnon says he loves her. He, has, he says, I love her. He conspires to create a situation where they are alone together and he rapes her. It then says this, he hated her. He hated her. In fact, the hatred that he had for her was greater than the love that he had for her. The Bible's wonderful in the word, the way that it describes it. Do you think he really loved her? Do you think he really loved her? Of course not. That's not love. It was a misplaced desire which gets out of control, which results in something even worse than the good thing that was perceived before. That is what happens. That is what happens when we mistreat the pattern that God has designed for this world. The pattern for relationships. He's saying, I, I, I want you, but I don't really want oneness with you. I don't want to be committed to you. I don't want to be constrained by you. I just want to be physical with you. What a tragedy. A crisis of desire, a crisis of power, and a crisis of guilt. It's where we are, isn't it? And that picture, I think, helps us to see and put into focus this great challenge. Is that where it ends? Are you in a situation where you're looking back and you're thinking, you know, it's all clear now. I can see the way it worked out. Are you in a situation where you're thinking to yourself, I'm still in that situation. I'm still twisted and perverted. I am still putting um, some sort of self-gratification before true oneness. Where do I go?
One of the amazing things about this story is what we read in the Psalms. Psalm 51, can I commend it to you? If you want to be encouraged, if you want to go away and see the outcome of this, go to Psalm 51. In that we read what the outcome of David's uh, coming to terms with his own reality was. He says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, for all of David's failure, for all of David's crisis, for all that he had now come to terms with what he knew about himself, he still knew what God was like. He still knew that God was the kind of God who you could go back to in that crisis when you've come to terms with the reality. The way this unfolds is beautifully portrayed in the Bible. God's spokesman comes to him and tells him a story about somebody who was stolen from a poor man, the only little lamb that he had, and David is incensed. And then God's spokesman said, and it's you. It's you. Because you have stolen from Uriah the only thing that he had. And David is torn to bits. He is destroyed emotionally by it. He is wrecked by it. And it is at that point, the point where he is wrecked, where he is destroyed emotionally, that he actually finds that he can move forward. You will never move forward with the issue of lust until you are wrecked. Until you are truly destroyed. Until you realize the reality. You look into the mirror of the Bible and say, I look at David, but the reality is, I see me. I see what I am like. I'm like that. I'm without hope. And then we say, Psalm 51, do you know what God is like? You know what God is like? He's somebody who you can come to at that point in time and say this, blot out my transgressions he goes on to say for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me I think that those words are some of the most profound my sin is ever before me those of us who have come to know Jesus as our saviour we can still say that there is stuff that is just it's just there it's just there it's there it's there it's there it's there It's just ever before me. I think David used those words because David actually went on to marry Bathsheba. After her husband had been killed, he went on to marry her. She lost the baby. She had another child, Solomon. I would guess that for all of his love for Bathsheba, for all of his love for Solomon, he looked into their eyes and his sin was ever before him. That's life, isn't it? Isn't that life? It's just like that, isn't it? It's just there all the time. But what is God like? Against you, David says, against you and you only have I sinned. How does that sound to you? 
Against you and you only have I sinned. Don't you think? David would say, but you've sinned against Uriah. It's a terrible thing. You've sinned against Bathsheba. You've sinned against the whole of the surrounding family. You've sinned against the whole of the nation of Israel. And yet David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Why? Because he knows. He knows this. Yes, of course he's sinned against all of those others. But ultimately sin is against God. Because what he has said is, I disregard what you have designed I disregard the pattern that you have put in place for the way that we ought to live. And I, at that moment in time, have said, I am going to live it my way. And as soon as I do that, I am disregarding you and I am sinning against you because I am saying I will live in your world according to my rules, not your world according to your rules. And at that point, he knows against you and you only have I sinned and done this terrible thing. So big what I've done. So that you may be justified, he says, in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's basically saying this, you know what? Everything that you've said. You just keep saying it in your word and it's true. You say that we are like this and I've just proven that it's true. I think for many of us, hopefully this afternoon, God's word is saying, do you know what? This is what we are like. And we're saying, I know. (laughs) I know. You are being proved to be correct. You are being proved to be true. But you know what else God is saying? I'm the God who you can come back. And you can say, Father, forgive me. I want to ask a question. How can we keep our sin in our sight And yet know the cleansing of God's powerful mercy. How can we keep sin in our eyes and yet know forgiveness? The answer, friends, is the cross. The answer is God's mercy revealed. The cross maintains for us the fact that our sin is a reality. Jesus on the cross is a reality. The cross is there to remind us of guilt, but in a beautiful, wonderful, glorious way, because it says this, yes, guilt, but guilt paid for. Guilt paid for. Isn't that incredible? Because God says, I am the kind of God who knows just what you are like, but I will still die for you. What do you think David deserved? He'd abused a family. He'd abused his power. He'd abused his responsibilities. He'd been murderous in his mind and he'd been murderous in his actions. He did not deserve to live. He deserved to die. Do you know what redeemed David? Do you know how David was redeemed? By the cross. By the same cross that you and I are redeemed through. Exactly the same. He looked forward in hope and anticipation. He believed the promises of God. He said, I'm sure that God in his promises is going to find a way to to bring a, a savior and a messiah. I know that to be true. I believe it. 
I want to ask you this afternoon, do you believe that by looking backwards? Do you believe by looking backwards and seeing the cross, it says to you this, I am a God who forgives, not by brushing it under the carpet, but by paying the price. I bear your sins in my body on the tree. How amazing is grace. That is scandalous, isn't it? Isn't it scandalous that David should be allowed to continue? He goes on to say this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. If it was still around, what would the news of the world say to David? You've got no chance, mate. You don't deserve a clean heart. And David and every believer in Jesus Christ would say, I know I don't deserve a clean heart. But will you create in me a clean one? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because the reality is I can't renew a right spirit, but you can. Will you do that? Will you do that? Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. I deserve to be stripped of relationship with you. But because the Jesus is stripped of relationship with his Father, I can find restored relationship with the living God. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I don't know about you, but my sin is ever before me. But I want to be filled with the joy of salvation, don't you? I want to be filled with the joy of knowing that I am forgiven. That I am loved. I want to know that. I want to be filled with that. I don't want to know it as an academic fact. I don't want to know it as a theological truth. Although I do. I want to know it so that it's filling me with joy. So that I can know that I am forgiven. The greatest thing that we need is to know that we are forgiven. And David asks for just that. Will you ask for that? He goes on to say this. Then, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I've learned something about me which is profoundly painful. I throw myself on your mercy and your grace. But I believe that the outcome can be good. That's amazing in God's grace. Bathsheba, Solomon, sit in the line of King Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Those who have sinned, those who have been sinned against, sit in the line of Jesus because God is a God of grace. Do you know who else sits in the line of King Jesus? Tamar. The one who's equally abused later on. Because God is a God of mercy. 
and grace. How can I allow my sin to ever be before me and be before me and yet no forgiveness? By keeping the cross in view. But knowing that that cross is empty. 